0: turned gray i'll still love you i'll always have this summer dream to dream
1: You're listening to episode 90 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. Angela Lansbury's experience proves that talent was not enough to become a major star in the studio system. Talent was also subject to the whim of moguls who decided on a contract player's type and rarely deviated from the categories they imposed when casting a picture. It's why Daryl Zanuck made Lynn Barry the heavy in A-pictures, and why he kept Alice Faye singing in musicals. It's why Louis B. Mayer kept Esther Williams in the pool as his Million Dollar Mermaid, and why he cast Angela Lansbury in secondary roles as a middle-aged woman when she was only a girl. Few actors could claim a more illustrious start in pictures. Angela Lansbury received a nomination for Best Supporting Actress for her first and second film roles. I should note that it wasn't only her film debut, but also her acting debut. Before she joined MGM, Angela had never acted professionally. Had the front office in MGM taken account of Lansbury's talent— Beyond Mayer's typecasting, she would have had a career more like a romantic lead such as Greer Garson or Deborah Carr. Instead, she was stuck playing middle aged frumps for nearly the 20 years she spent in the studio system. Angela's mother, Moyna McGill, had a successful career on the stage in London. She wrote skits for the children to perform for family gatherings and taught them the basic skills of improvisation. During the Blitz, Moyna fled the, to the United States with her children, Angela and the twin boys Bruce and Edgar. Moyna's older daughter Isolde, from a first marriage, was by this point married to Peter Ustinov. Ustinov had assisted the family in making contacts with American patrons. The widow and her children gained nearly the last passage across the Atlantic for the duration of the war. In New York, they received housing and a small stipend from rich folks until Moyna's application for a green card and a work permit came through. The boys were enrolled in a boarding school where tuition was picked up by patron funds. For years, Moina and Angela scraped by on hand-me-downs from rich benefactors. They knew hunger and poverty like many refugee families. But Moina's genteel background left her unbroken by hardship. One afternoon, tired of the bleak conditions, Moina pawned one of her coats so she could take Angela to the cinema. As she established connections among actors in New York City, Moyna became friendly with Elaine Anderson, an actress who was married to the actor Zachary Scott. The couple invited Moyna and her kids to spend Christmas. Elaine had asked what kind of food they would like to eat. They were all desperate for fruit, which was generally too costly for their meager budget. Moyna also requested lobster for Christmas dinner. The hosts were surprised, but managed to wrangle shellfish for the main course, which was no easy feat during wartime rationing. In New York, they lived in a rented tiny flat, and Angela enrolled in the Fegan School of Drama and Radio. Angela believed, though, that acting couldn't really be taught. Acting was a talent you either had or didn't. If you had the gift, you could build on it embellish it and strengthen it, but you could not acquire basic dramatic faculties. When she was 16, Angela joined a group of performers on a tour entertaining troops in Canada who were about to ship out to support Britain in the war effort. She sang for the new recruits, wearing her mother's clothes and other hand-me-downs to disguise the fact that she was only a teenager. Moina went out to Hollywood to try her luck in the film colony, after Angela finished the tour in Canada and returned to the little flat in New York City, Moina contacted her and told her to close up the apartment and join her in Hollywood, where there were plenty of opportunities for work. Angela was only 17 years old when she packed up everything they owned and moved across the country on her own. They found accommodations through Flora Robson, a friend of Moina's from the London Theatre crowd. It was a tiny bungalow in Laurel Canyon. They found work for the Christmas Rush in Bullocks, Wilshire. Moina worked in the toy department, while Angela worked in gift wrap. Angela had a knack for wrapping presents, which was important in a high-end department store. After the new year, the store transferred Angela to the cosmetics counter at $18 a week. She was a gifted saleswoman who soon earned a raise to $28 a week. Angela's mother started hosting a number of Sunday afternoon socials for the British expat set, where new arrivals could be sure of a good meal and a chance of making contacts. Sunday was the only day of rest if you worked in a film studio. Sunday afternoon brunch was probably as prime networking time as Friday night happy hour was on Wall Street. One afternoon, Angela met Michael Dine, a young actor with no experience who had a screen test scheduled in MGM based only on his good looks. Dine suggested that she might like to try out for a part of a music hall singer in the picture of Doreen Gray. He asked if she could sing. Dine wasn't just throwing a stale line at Angela. He followed up on his promise and spoke with Mel Ballerino in the casting department. Ballerino invited Angela to the studio. She arrived with Moina and tow, thinking she was there to audition for the part of Sybil Vane in the adaptation of the Oscar Wilde novella. Mel Ballerino had another part in mind first. He told Angela that they were interested in casting the role of a young housemaid in Gaslight, based on a hit stage play called Angel Street. Production had been delayed because George Cukor, the director, had not been able to find an actress who was right to play the Cockney maid. Before Angela could really digest the information, ballerino rang Cukor and the producer Arthur Hornblow. A meeting was set for later in the afternoon. While they waited, Moina and Angela were welcome to have lunch in the MJM commissary. Gaslight was based on that stage play Angel Street, written by John Van Druten. Moyna knew John Van Druten from her days working on the stage, and rang the playwright from the commissary to put in a good word for her daughter. Van Druten did pick up the phone to vouch for Angela, but he got her age wrong, and he told the MGM director that she was fourteen instead of seventeen. Q. Corps really nearly ruled her out as being too young. When they met, Cukor was impressed by Angela's professional manner and scheduled a screen test for the following morning. Cukor gave her a scene to prepare, and then he staged an impromptu rehearsal. Cukor ran through the script and coached Angela on her lines. Then she was sent off to wardrobe to collect a suitable costume to play the part of Nancy, the saucy young maid. For the screen test, Angela did the scene with Hugh Marlowe reading the part that would be played by Charles Boyer. MGM kept her waiting on a decision for weeks. While she waited, she also did a screen test for the picture of Dorian Gray. Angela grew restless as she waited for word on the test, and rightly so. What she didn't know was that Louis B. Mayer had yet to see her test. He was on the East Coast watching his racehorses. The studio couldn't cast the role without his approval. When Mayer returned to MGM and watched the test, he barked an order to sign that girl. After years of scrambling to stay afloat, Angela went from $28 a week in the cosmetics counter to $500 a week under contract to MGM. Immediately and without question, she became the breadwinner for her mother and younger brothers. Angela Lansbury was 17 years old. She had never acted in front of a real audience, and there she was on a film set, an MGM, playing next to Charles Boyer and Ingrid Bergman, working with one of the best directors. Soon after she joined the cast of Gaslight, she won the part of Sybil Vane in The Picture of Dorian Gray. Not only did the studio seem unaware of the remarkable talent they had on their hands, the front office tried to meddle with her name. Since she was a girl, Angela went by Bridget, her middle name. The studio official didn't like Bridget. He thought her given name Angela was better, but he wasn't happy with the last name. What about Angela Marlowe, he asked. Then he had a list of other names for her to try if she didn't like that one but she held out and stood f- up for her name and kept it. In two consecutive years, Angela Lansbury won the the, the nominations for um, Best Supporting Actress for Gaslight and the Picture of Dorian Gray. She lost each time, first to Ethel Barrymore in None But the Lonely Heart, and the following year to Anna Revere in National Velvet. But still, what an illustrious uh, entry into the film colony. Following such a strong debut, by the logic of filmmaking, she should have been cast in larger leading roles. Instead, the studio haphazardly placed Angela in one supporting role after another without a plan towards the usual star buildup. Having proven herself, she should have received better parts. George Cukor himself noted that Angela's was a Cinderella story. She arrived with no experience, but by magic, she became the character she played in front of the camera. Cukor noted that even her face changed when she played Nancy. It somehow became lopsided. Cukor felt that the studio miscast Angela in every role she took after the picture of Dorian Gray but Angela believed in her dramatic gifts. She knew how to prepare for a role and she knew how to play it. She didn't complain when they cast her in National Velvet or the Harvey Girls. She loved the experience of doing a musical because it felt more like being part of a theatrical company where everyone worked together rehearsing on set. It was a change from the drama she had filmed, which had only included the actors who were in a scene that were listed on the call sheet each day. But for the Harvey girls, everyone came onto the set. In an interview with Erskine Childers, Angela shared her ambition for playing romantic leading roles. She confided to the reporter, I want to play a scene with Clark Gable or Jimmy Stewart or some other he-man in which he breaks down the door and I'm behind it. I want to be the reason he broke down the door. Angela recalled that at the time she started at MGM, she not only wished to be the one who won the leading man, but she also wanted to play in comedies in the kind of roles Gene Arthur did. Looking back on the way MGM mismanaged her career, Angela noted that she didn't fit in with the innocent ingenue types such as June Allison, Janet Lee, and Gloria Dehaven. And she didn't fit in with the sirens in the studio, those women like Lana Turner and Ava Gardner. They didn't know what to do with Angela, but rather than figure it out, they stuck her in one picture after another just to keep her working. In time, she was typecast as the heavy, the woman who loses the man, the bitchy type. When MGM cast Angela Lansbury in a remake of If Winter Comes in 1947, she knew she would never reach the top tier of the studio, billed above the title. She took the news as a blow. Angela knew that for actors, your standing is measured by billing and salary. She wasn't billed second in the picture next to Walter Pidgeon. That part went to Deborah Carr, who had recently signed in MGM. Carr was 26 years old. She'd been brought to the studio to work next to Clark Gable in the Hucksters earlier in 1947. When a studio official had introduced her to Louis B. Mayer for the first time, he told the boss that her surname rhymed with Carr. Mayer took her hand and said, no, it rhymes with star. You can bet that Mayer's rhyme scheme was soon embedded in studio publicity for Deborah Carr's build-up. If Winter Comes was Carr's second feature for MGM. Angela had really wanted the role of Effie, the young girl who becomes pregnant in the story. If she wasn't given top billing, then she wanted to have a good, juicy, dramatic role that was suited to her age. To her utter dismay, the part of Effie went to Janet Leigh, who was two years younger. Lee was also appearing in her second picture for MGM, like Deborah Carr. Angela Lansbury was only 21 years old when they cast her as a 35 year old Mabel Sabre, the stern wife of Walter Pigeon. I should note that Walter Pigeon was 50 years old, only in Hollywood. Could a 50-year-old man find himself in a sex scandal picture between women who were 26, 21, and 19 years old? In her prime ingenue years, when she had skin like vanilla ice cream and hair as lustrous as mink, MGM had typecast Angela in the difficult woman older bracket. It didn't help when she went and complained to Benny Thau, head of the casting department. She even took her case to Ida Coverman, Louis B. Mayer's executive secretary, right-hand, and gatekeeper. Ida eventually granted Angela a private conference with the studio mogul. Angela had been welcomed into Mayer's inner circle playing cards. If he hosted a party, he would ring Angela and tell her to come an hour early to play cards with his crew. He may have respected her as a card sharp, but he was adamant about casting. Socializing with the boss, proving that she could hold her own with his cronies, had not lent any advantage in studio politics. Angela was still going to play the 35-year-old wife. Even though she was crestfallen to take the role, she no doubt channeled her disappointment in front of the camera. More to the point, Angela's private life had prepared her to play the role of a woman stuck in a loveless marriage. When Angela arrived in Hollywood, she kept to her work, first behind the counter in Bullocks, Wilshire, and then in MGM, where she arrived 6 o'clock each morning and worked until 6 o'clock in the evening, Monday through Saturday, without fail. She had little experience with dating, She spent most of her time at home, or socialized with Moina and her friends. An actor had wanted to meet Angela and her mother, Moyna. He was impressed with Angela in the picture of Dorian Gray, and with Moyna's small part in The Big Clock. His name was Richard Cromwell, whom everyone called Roy. He invited them both to dinner at one of his frequent dinner parties. Roy was 16 years older than Angela, but she preferred older men rather than those her own age. He had made his film debut in an uncredited role in The King of Jazz in 1930 and became popular playing the juvenile in pictures like Gregory LaCava's Age of Consent, The Strange Love of Molly Louvain, and Emma, the smash hit starring Marie Dressler. He also made pictures with Clara Bow and Gary Cooper, Roy had blonde, boyish good looks that were a standout. Maggie Williams, who was married to Scott McKay, both close friends of Roy's, explained to Angela that Roy was a native Californian, but he was also from an impoverished background. Roy had an origin story that was as Dickensian as the hardscrabble backgrounds of many film stars in the film colony of the 1930s. Roy remembered that he and his siblings were very poor. One year for Christmas, they received many presents. Through a window, the little boy could see people outside watching them. It turned out that the rich donors had come to watch the poor urchins open their gifts. Roy never forgot that moment. He carried it with him always. It was why he took so much pride in his home. He considered his tasteful decor and swimming pool as proof that he was no longer a charity case. When she met Roy, Angela remembered seeing his picture in the movie magazine she bought as a girl. Although Roy's career had never really grown beyond second lead or supporting roles, he was popular and well-liked in the film colony. He entertained often and lived next door to Jerry Asher, who was head of publicity for Warner Brothers. Roy introduced Angela to his passion for jazz, interior design, ceramics, and hot gossip about the stars. They went to bed together. It was her first time. Soon, Roy introduced her to his mother, and then Angela married Roy in September 1945. Roy gave Angela a Steinway piano for a wedding present. They honeymooned in Lake Tahoe. They hosted friends for lunch or dinner. The newlyweds entertained as a group by parading around the pool doing high kicks as though they were in a Broadway musical. Angela's career kept her very busy, with a cameo in a musical Till the Clouds Rolled By and a loan out for the private affairs of Belle and Me. During the same time, the press referred to Roy as a former actor when they printed features on Angela. Roy developed a sinus problem, migraine headaches, and his drinking got out of hand. One day when Angela returned from the studio, Roy's car wasn't in the drive. His clothes were gone. He left a note on the piano which read, I'm sorry, darling, I just can't go on. There was no explanation. Angela was gutted and sought out friends for answers. She even made several appointments with Roy's psychiatrist and spent sessions trying to make sense of what happened. The analyst couldn't discuss his patient but he tried to reassure her that she had done nothing wrong. Nobody was forthcoming. It took time before Angela realized what everyone else already knew. Roy was gay. Rumors circulated in the film colony that the marriage broke up because Angela found Roy in bed with another man. Angela denied the story, noting that it only happens that way in the movies. After living together for barely nine months, Angela received a divorce in August 1946 on the grounds of incompatibility. She would remain raw about it for months to come. Perhaps the role of Mabel Sabre assisted Angela in working through the grief over the end of her first love. She grew stronger after her romantic misadventure. She took the pain and became more resilient. She would be less naive in the future. And she developed more empathy when she remained friends with Roy rather than taking a scorched earth approach to her divorce. Although she was devastated, she understood that Roy was living a lie, and it had made him physically ill. They grew to be friends, and remained so, until his untimely death in 1960, when he was only 50 years old. When she walked on the set to play a role she didn't want, feeling the studio had treated her shabbily, she had a well of emotion to draw upon to play a woman who feels overlooked and cast aside. Angela Lansbury makes her first appearance in the film after a neighbor, who stopped by for a chess move on his way to work, asks Walter Pidgeon, now where's your queen? On the cue, Angela descends the stairs. It's impossible to watch this and not think of her role as the Red Queen in The Manchurian Candidate, which was also her third Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actress. If Winter Comes may not be the first film you think of from her screen credits, but Mabel Saber is the foundation for the domineering women she would play, such as Kay Thorndike in State of the Union and the Machiavellian publisher that she played there, and later as Mrs. Eleanor Shaw Islin, who plans to overthrow American democracy. Lansbury plants the seeds for those characters here with Mabel Saber, Although Angela objected to her character as being dowdy and a bitch, I wouldn't say that, but she is kind of dowdy from her styling. Her hair, makeup, and wardrobe were designed to make Angela look older, and the studio styling of Mabel reminds me of what they did over in Columbia for Ida Lupino when she starred in Ladies in Retirement from 1941. Ida was only 23 years old when she played a middle aged woman. Angela borrows a similar hairstyle from Ida. It's this bouffant updo swept back from the face and piled high on top. It has a severe quality about it. Both women wore a minimum of makeup. There seems to be little more than pancake and powder. There's no false lashes, eyeshadow, rouge, or lipstick. If anything, they might have used some contouring on Angela to take the softness out of her cheeks so that she appears with sharper angles to her face. Angela's clothes are well fitted without any padding, but they're pretty plain. She's not done up in heavy black the way Ida was, but she does appear in white for the same effect that Sisters of Mercy habit look she adopts later in the picture is pretty stark around her face. Mabel Saber is the most believable and compelling character in the picture for me. There's very little known about the other women on screen, except one decides she regrets not marrying Mark Saber, and the other one uh, who turns to him when she's cast out. From the breakfast scene, Mabel is the standout the audience can see a strained atmosphere. Walter Pigeon sits down at the table and picks up the morning newspaper, which is far more interesting to him than his wife. He ignores his wife, except for a few sarcastic remarks he makes about Mabel's friend. Walter Pigeon plays a man who can barely muster a grunt for his wife, yet as soon as the new household staff arrive, he suddenly becomes animated. He flirts, he jokes, he bestows nicknames high and low when Mabel tells him that the girls are sisters who have the surname Jinx. The only time he shows any interest in Mabel is when he learns that she made the mistake or she made the marmalade that he's been stuffing into his face the whole time. Really, when it comes to on-screen eating, Walter Pidgeon is no George Sanders, why George Sanders was so elegant at table, even if he were chawing into a huge lamb chop or a a drumstick, he looked elegant. But Pigeon can't even manage a bit of toast without pulling half half of it out of his mouth in the process of eating it and getting a bit of marmalade on his upper lip. Meanwhile, Mabel has the most exquisite manners. She turns the meal into a ballet of cup and cutlery. She has precise gestures to set things right, such as when Lowjinx brings the teapot and puts the arm too far to the left for her to reach it, so Mabel turns it around to the other side before she pours the tea. She eats with a knife and fork, continental style, rather than shoving the toast in her mouth like Walter Pigeon does. Mabel takes pride in a well-run home. Mark can't leave fast enough in the morning, especially after Mabel's busybody friend arrives and shares news that Mark's old flame Nona has returned to town. The breakfast scene tells viewers that the saber marriage is as dead as the kippers out of a frying pan that we see in a later scene. Mabel confides confides in her friend once Mark leaves. She's prepared to fight to keep Mark, but she plans to be smart about it. How do you keep little boys from stealing jam, she asks. Lock up the cupboard, her friend suggests. No, unlock it, Mabel says, correcting her friend. She plans to be permissive so that Mark can see he made a good match. Who could argue with Mabel's mature approach? In the next scene, Deborah Carr turns up at Walter Pigeon's office. She was in town what 5 minutes before she's looking after her old boyfriend. She resumes calling him her old pet name, Marco, which she uses all the time even in front of his wife. She throws herself at him when they're both married already. I can only assume that the production code office let this slide on the Irene Dunn principle. They didn't raise moral objections to a woman who wants to break up two marriages because Deborah Carr, with a pocketbook in the crook of her arm, looks like she just stepped out of a Himalayan convent. She looks so ladylike and proper that sex doesn't enter the picture for the men with dirty minds who work for Joe Breen. When Mark meets Nona again, the men in the Saber's office take note of the visitor. Already tongues are wagging. One of the novel approaches of If Winter Comes has to be the three-cornered love affair that is... The most business of gossip and scandal mongers, we see it occur between men in the office and the pub, when most often pictures show the audience that gossip is hardwired among women. It's how women communicate, gain power, and create a social hierarchy. But in Victor Saville's picture, the snooping, whisper campaigns, and unfair conclusions based on hearsay are passed between men. Oh, uh, Nona Tiber
0: was in to see me this afternoon. She was saying... That was nice of her. How did she look? What sort of a hat did she have on? I didn't know this. That was very tactful of you, darling. Does she still call you Marco? Yes, why shouldn't she? No reason at all. Mark, I want you to do something for me. Uh-huh. See a lot of Nona. Why? I want to prove something. I don't think I'm being silly. I want you to look at her, then look back at me for good. See? Yes, I... I think you're over her, but I'm not sure that you know it. And I want you to. I'm an extraordinary woman, aren't I? That's why you appreciate me.
1: When Mark tells Mabel about his meeting with Nona, she doesn't manipulate him. Mabel tells him directly that she wants him to see Nona, and then look back at her. It's sensible. It's mature. When you think about it, isn't that what experts advise for a remedy? For those little crushes that pop up during a marriage? That you should choose your spouse over and over again. I love that bit about what kind of hat did she wear? You know, that she's paying attention to details, but also more importantly, seeing if Mark does. Mabel isn't catty with Nona or about her. When they meet again at the Cricket Fair, she doesn't freeze Nona out or sour her reputation in in the with the folks in Penny Green. When Mark and Nona had discussed Mabel in that first scene when they meet, they agreed that Mabel was pretty, generous, and kind. That's the way viewers see her, too, until a change suddenly occurs with the subplot with Janet Lee's Effie Bright. Janet Lee has a great scene with a man who plays her father, a god botherer, who objects to the lipstick she wears and then later throws her out on the street for being in the family way without a husband. She turns to Mark for support as kind of a father figure, but that's not the way that Mabel reads it.
0: Sorry, Mrs. Perch is gone, Mabel. Freddie's death was too much for her. Oh, that's too bad. But I do think it was very funny that Miss Bright to send for you. After all, the proper thing to have done. Penny, say, can't you leave the girl alone? I can. Can you? I don't understand you, Mabel. I thought you were so sure. Life of us so sure that nothing could change you no no time I couldn't but this seems to be different it's these innocent eyed little things there's been a change in you mark and i think it dates from the time you started going to the purchase twice a week every week i went to see mrs perch freddie asked i give you my word now. my word is that enough for you not when you give it so violently Or could
1: it be because of a bad conscience? Could it? Suddenly, Angela's character becomes unhinged when Mark walks in early one morning after having been out all night. She's in a bathrobe. Her face is really shiny, more like greasy. It looks like she went to bed with cold cream on her face and just wiped it off hurriedly. She openly accuses him of carrying on with Effie Bright. That's what everyone in town thinks, too. Mark hasn't confided in his wife. He hasn't treated her like someone who should share his secrets. He wants to be noble and gallant on his own, rather than bring Mabel into his plan to save the girl. Mark has written his wife off as the villain, and as a result, she's forced into that role. It's a rather thankless task for Angela Lansbury to be the shrew who lacks charity and condemns the little pregnant girl. At least Mabel goes out with a high note. She leaves him and takes everything with her. During production of If Winter Comes, Angela's dear friend Heard Hatfield, who had played the title role in the picture of Dorian Gray, invited her to celebrate his birthday at his Oceanside Ranch. Angela needed a ride, which Hurd sorted out. He told her about a British officer who had just signed with Metro. The new Brit on the lot had been dating Joan Crawford, so Angela had to know he was good-looking. He sounded like an awful wolf bragging about Joan Crawford, she noted. Wouldn't you, Hurd replied, it had only been five months since her divorce from Roy, and Angela was reluctant to submit to Herd's obvious attempt at matchmaking. But from the minute she got in the car, Angela was smitten. He was tall and very handsome. His name was Peter Shaw. Angela married Shaw in 1949. Peter gave up on acting and became a talent agent. He even worked as vice president of production in Metro for a number of years. They were happily married until Peter died in 2003. Angela Lansbury did not allow typecasting to limit her career. After she lost the third Best Supporting Actress nomination, she set her ambitions for the stage. The studio system by this point was in shambles, and Angela did not pause among the rubble. She immersed herself in rigorous voice and dance training and then rehearsals when she won the coveted role of MAME, the smash Broadway musical. Over the decades that followed, Angela proved her versatility on stage, in television, and film, in roles across genre. She drew critical praise in musicals, comedy, drama from her 40s on. I would wager that during the pandemic, one of the most popular comfort shows on everyone's list has been Murder, She Wrote, the top-rated, long-running mystery series that starred Angela Lansbury. Thanks for listening. The following books helped me to write the episode. Balancing Act, the authorized biography of Angela Lansbury by Martin Gottfried, published in 1999. Angela... Angela Lansbury, A Life on the Stage and Screen by Rob Edelman and Audrey Kupferberg, published in 1996. Deborah Carr by Eric Braun, published in 1978. There Really Was a Hollywood by Janet Lee, published in 1984. Join me next time for episode 91, when I talk about Alice Faye in That Night in Rio from 1941. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, why not leave a nice review on iTunes or say so on social media. Thank you.